We're going to look at one of my absolute most treasured passages of Scripture in all of the Word of God. It's a passage God has used many, many times and time and time again to uh, both convict my heart, to strengthen my heart, to encourage my heart. And we're going to go there this morning as we take a little bit of a break from Philippians. And as we, as we do that, I just want you to pause and think. Uh, I don't think this will be challenging for any of us. When you think about the past year, this is the last Sunday of 2021, by the way. Next Sunday, it'll be 2022. As you think about the last year, as you think about the last several years, a theme that you will find time and time again come up in all of the media, in the stories, and all of this is fear. Because the reality is, it seems like every day there is a new headline that is both shocking and terrifying of someone who has died or some tragic way a group of people have died or some way that the, the country is tanking, the world is tanking. There it seems to be a perpetual reality of fear because the reality is for you and I, we have very little actual control over anything or anyone. And when you and I sit back and see some of the headlines, I'll just be honest, when I sit back and see some of the headlines, when I process through, when I think about raising, for me and Bethany, raising children in this day and age, there's a lot of things that drive me to a place of fear because we live in a dangerous world where we have absolutely little control, especially over the things and the people that are most precious to you and I. We walk through seasons, we walk through trials, we walk through hardships where the darkness seems absolutely crushing. But church family, in the midst of that temptation, in the midst of the temptation to fear, to fight for control, to walk afraid, you and I are called not to fear, to walk under His control, to walk confident of who He is. So this morning, I want to walk through, and we're going to see four truths of who He is that drive us not to live in fear. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Now let me tell you, right off the bat in verse 1, it says, but now... So it's important we understand the context that this is written in. Isaiah the prophet is, is prophesying at a time when the, the kingdom of is, Israel is split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom made up of ten of the twelve tribes, and there's the southern kingdom we call Judah, but is actually Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And in this time, both kingdoms, the northern kingdom never walks rightly with God. The southern kingdom will have moments where they walk rightly and then unfortunately have more moments where they don't. But at this time, the northern kingdom is, is about to undergo invasion from Assyria where Assyria will come in and, and they will not only conquer the northern kingdom, but they will, they will disperse the ten tribes all throughout the empire and to where those tribes are lost until the Lord brings them back. The southern kingdom has not collapsed yet, but is going to face, in the years to come after Isaiah, an attack from Babylon in which they will be carried, conquered, and carried out three different times into exile in Babylon 
as a result of their refusal to repent at the Lord's conviction. And chapter 42 of Isaiah is God saying exactly that, saying that I have been patient, I have waited, I have given opportunity, but my people, my servants are blind, they are deaf, they do not want to see, they will not hear. And so I'm going to give them up, and they will know the fierceness of my anger, they will know my discipline and tragedy comes upon. You see, the people that this passage was originally written to were facing a hard, a hardship, a suffering, a trial as the result of God's discipline in their lives through a really wicked, horrible, dark, evil empire. But listen to what the Lord says to speak strength here. But now... In spite of this, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you and I have called you by name. You are mine. Here's the first thing that God says. He says that we've got to be sure and be absolutely certain that we know that he is intimately related to his people. Do you see what he says there? That says the Lord, your creator, Borah. It's a word used only of God. It refers to his special creation. God is the one who created the people of Israel. They were his special people, his prized people. It delighted God to make Israel. He freely decided to make Israel as his possession. He who formed you, O Israel. That word formed is, is a more intimate term than Borah, the term for creator. It's a more intimate term, and it indicates, listen to how it's defined, it indicates a painstaking care whereby every circumstance of life is weighted and measured to give exactly the right pressure of the potter's hand so that the finished vessel will match his specifications. It speaks of an intimate involvement in every minute, small, little detail to form and bring together and to create something that is exactly the way the Creator wants. And so just as God orchestrated and worked and moved through the Exodus story to shape Israel, just as God was working and moving and shaping to, to discipline and restore Israel and proper worship there in the exile, so church family for you and I God is at painstaking work in every minute little detail of your life, of my life, to take his potter's hands to craft you and I, Romans 8, 28 and 29, into the image, conformity of the image of his son. There is not a detail that is spared. There is not a part of our lives that God is not intimately acquainted with. And understand, just as he created, just as he created Israel, so church family, he has created you and I freely. He didn't need us. No one pushed him to create us. It pleased him. He created us out of love, desiring to make us beings in his image, able to relate 
to him and with him, capable of receiving his love and responding back to him in the only logical manner, which is loving worship. He has created us. He is actively at work in our lives, forming us. And so in light of this, he says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you redeemed you, to bring someone into safety, to be the avenger of blood. It's an extremely intimate term, church family, and it means the Lord's deliberate acceptance of all the rights of the next of kin. This is what this means. Practically, to to redeem someone means God sees us as his family and takes on all the rights and responsibilities to deal with our enemies and provide for our needs. This is for him to be our redeemer, to redeem us, to buy us back. The other aspect of redemption then is to see someone on the seller's block bound and enchained and to pay the purchase, to redeem them off the seller's block. And church family, if you and I have responded to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, we have had that sense of conviction from the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have responded as he has called us by name to his offer of salvation. He has redeemed us. He has boughten us off of the the seller's block. He has freed us from those chains. He has claimed us as family, sons, and daughters by adoption. And he now takes on every right and responsibility to both defend, protect, and provide for us, his children. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. And in that redemption, I have called you by name. Now, Jesus would say in the Gospel of John that no one comes to the Father. There is not a a, a man or woman, boy or girl, who, as every one of us are, is born out of relationship with God. There's not a one of us that comes to Christ except that the Father first draws us. Now, I don't say that to make some kind of theological statement of various arguments that are out there. What I say that to say is the reality is not a one of us in this room who are a Christian are a Christian because somehow we snuck into the family of God unnoticed. Okay? Now process that because we all laugh, but some of us think about ourselves that way before God. There's not a one of us who, you know, when God was out there and and, and God was at work saving a Billy Graham and a Jimmy Draper and God was at work saving a Matt Chandler and a J.D. Greer, pick whatever your favorite Christian people are, and somehow we just happen to sneak in behind one of them. No, you need to understand, on the day Billy Graham was saved, God said, Billy. On the day that I was saved, God said, Wes. On the day you were saved, God called you by your name. He knows your name. The calling of a person's name claims a certain kind of intimacy and relationship, a personalness. I mean, let's be, when I knelt down to Anita, proposed to Bethany, I didn't say, generically to the world, please marry me. I said, Bethany, there's a specificity. God has called us by name. He claims us as his own. You are 
mind. Understand that, church family. If you are in Christ, whether you walked into worship today, walking the best you've ever walked with Christ, or whether you are, are barely making it, whether you are walking in obedience or walking in disobedience, if you have been washed in the blood of Christ, Jesus calls you by name and says, right now at this moment, you are mine. I created you. I am forming you. I have redeemed you, and you are mine. Insert your name there. See, we've got to know that God is intimately involved in the lives and with his people if we're going to walk unafraid. Look at verse 2. He says this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. See, church family, if we're going to walk unafraid in a world that is terrifying, we've got to know that God is with his people through the trials and tribulations. See the language there? I mean, the, the imagery is, is beautiful. When you pass through the waters, when you walk through those waters, they're not going, or I will be with you. You're not going to walk through them by yourself. Even though you may be seem isolated and alone, even though the waters surround you and you look as far as you can see, I am with you. Those rivers, they're not going to overflow. They may come up to your neck. They may splash you in the face. You're going to get wet, but they will not drown you. Those fires, no one wants to walk through a fire, but you're going to walk through the fire. But when you walk through that fire, because I am with you, you won't turn to ash. You won't die of smoke inhalation. You won't even be burned. You may feel the heat. You may smell the smoke. But I am with you. And the waters and the fires, which in, in the book of Isaiah are very representative of the powers of other nations bringing both assault uh, under the discipline of God and assault outside of the discipline of God, meaning trials and tribulations that God allows, trials and tribulations that God allows because he's refining us, trials and tribulations that God allows just simply because we live in a sinful world, yet because God is with his people, his people are not drowned or turned to ash. Now, church family, process that for a second. Scripture is very, very clear with you and I who've been created by God, who've been redeemed by God, who are being formed by God, who God calls by name, Scripture is very clear that if we walk the path of Christ, we will walk a path of hardship and suffering. At minimum, because you and I now are claimed by the one whom the world hates. And Jesus said, you will be hated by all. Why? Because the world hates me. And he says elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, not only will the world hate you, he says, but it's enough that the disciple be like the teacher. So if you and I are disciples of Christ, it is absurd for us to think that somehow we will escape the reality of the life of Christ. So Scripture is clear. We will face trials. We will face tribulations. It's not a matter of if. It is simply a matter of when. 
But scripture is also clear. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Scripture is also clear that I go before you and with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Scripture is also clear that that I will take all things and work them together for my good in your life. See, Scripture is clear that God never leaves us, that God goes before us, he goes with us, that he does not fail us, he does not forsake us, that he takes everything together. It is clear in Scripture that you and I may get wet, you and I may feel the heat, and you and I may smell the smoke, but we can walk through those trials and tribulations with absolute confidence because he is with us. He is with us. He is with us. There is a confidence that comes from the fact that he is with us. He won't leave or forsake us. Why? Because he is the one who came and was forsaken on our behalf. And what you and I are to do in these times is rather than fearing these times, rather than, than, than grumbling over these times, rather than rejecting these times, we are to count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when we encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And we're to let endurance have its full and total effect that we might be made mature and complete. There is no pathway to maturity and depth in Christ apart from following him through the waters and the fires. So the question becomes, church family, when we face these, will we, like Israel at the Red Sea in the wilderness, grumble and complain and question and say, God, why did you bring us here to die even though you just miraculously delivered us out of the oppression of Egypt? Why have you now brought us here to die? Will we question God's character or will we submit and worship God like Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego who said this when faced with the literal fire? If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Will we know the conviction of seeing God deliver while we sit there in a lack of faith, or will we know the joy of seeing him in deeper, greater intimacy as we watch the power of his might and the water and the fire? Will we come out on the other side and see God be exactly who he says he is and filled with joy, or will we be filled with conviction because we do see God is exactly who he says he is? We just don't believe he is. You can take anything in this. God is the same as we've watched in in Bethany and I's lives. The whole housing thing to move and get here. It's not a major trial. It's not a minor trial, but it's a trial. There's times in there you want to grumble and complain and go, Lord, what on earth is happening? Why can every possible thing that seems to make this go wrong go wrong? But regardless of what our response is, here's the reality. God showed himself to be faithful the same way he's always shown himself to be faithful and the same way he'll always show himself to be faithful. The question in our lives was, would we, when he shows himself to be faithful, 
When the light comes into the valley, be found on our knees worshiping at his feet. Or would we be found several feet away, grumbling, complaining, and doubting, grasping for control because of the fear in our hearts? And church family, on the record of our lives, here's the question. If he is truly with us through the waters and the fires, then when we get to the end of the path he's laid out for our lives, and we finally see him face to face, will the way that we have trusted him and walked with him and taken him at his word lead to the encounter that when we see him face to face that we go, Lord, you look just like I imagined you looked because I actually believed your word. Or will we get before the Lord and go, wow, you really do look exactly like you said you looked. What a sorrow to have spent so much of my life believing you looked another way. Now, I do want to be clear here. God's presence with us through trials and tribulations does not mean church family that we cannot grieve and mourn when those trials and tribulations happen. Sometimes in our culture, what we do is we say, well, I do not want to doubt God. I do not want to question God. So therefore, I cannot grieve. False. Grief is not questioning God. Grief is the response of being a human in a broken world. And you say, well, how can that possibly be? Because when Jesus loses his friend Lazarus and he sees his sister weeping, what does Jesus do? He weeps. So grief cannot be sinful, otherwise it makes Jesus a sinner. No, you see, in fact, actually, if we are confident that God's presence is with us in the trials and tribulations, that is exactly what will give you and I the strength to, with boldness and confidence, run into the throne room to find mercy and grace in time of need as we confidently fall on our knees before him and weep. Because some trials and tribulations are hard. They're piercing. And God's presence with us enables us not only not to fear, but also to grieve. Remember, God says, do not fear, not do not grieve. He says, do not fear, but to grief, he says, come and find and know my comfort and peace. So we know that he is intimately engaged with his people. We know that he is present in trials and tribulations. But look what else, verse 3, for I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Now understand what he's saying. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am, his personal name. I am the I am. I am the God who delivers. I am the God who saves. I am the God who eliminates foes. And he says, I am your God. Now that is not, I am the God you picked. What that is, is I am the God who picked you. I am your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior, all of this language speaks to this intimate relationship and God's, God's saving, His pulling, His rescuing, His delivering. And He says, I have, I have ransomed, I have taken Egypt and, and given Egypt as your ransom, cushion Seba in your place. Now understand the language here. This is that idea of ransom where someone is enslaved, we mentioned it earlier, someone is enslaved and a payment must be made to purchase this person's freedom. And what God says is you, and if you're an exile 
in Babylon at the time, reading this, Isaiah having written this prophecy years and years prior, and you realize that on a world stage at that moment, when Judah is in captivity, they are the least attractive, least valuable people in the eyes of the world. And when God says, I would give Egypt for you, God says, I would give the most powerful, prosperous, beautiful, I would give everything the world values in your place. Not just Egypt, but Egypt to the fullest extent, Cush and Seba as well. I would give them in your place. I would, I would take you out and put them in your spot. Why? Because you are precious in my sight, weighty, valuable. You are honored, and I love you. So I will give men in your place and peoples in exchange for your life. Church, church family, we have to know and be absolutely confident who God is and how he values his people. What he says here to a people in captivity is, I would give and I will give the most precious of everything in the world to redeem and ransom you back. And church family, here's the beauty though. You and I are not captive Israelites under Babylon. You and I instead are living post the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it's not the most valuable and prosperous and beautiful peoples of the world that God has given in our place. No, because that's not enough to redeem you and I out of sin. Instead, do you know what Jesus paid? He paid with his own blood. Amen. Precious blood of the holy spotless lamb. God gave his own son because there was an eternal price in ch chaining you and I to death that you and I will never be able to pay, nor could anyone else in all creation. But God sent his son. Not that we loved him, but he loved us. That Jesus would be the propitiation, the sacrifice to appease the righteous, just wrath of God in our place on our behalf to become our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And why? Why does God do this, church family? Because as only someone who is truly good like God, he looks down upon you and I and declares and sees that we are precious and honored in his sight. And hear me for real, God really does actually love you and me. And it's not a wishy-washy, mamby-pamby love that desires to make us feel good and happy about ourselves. No, it is a love that sees the problem and is willing to pay whatever the price in order to make us good. Because God, who is good, knows what is good. It says he was pleased to crush the son. And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. Because we're precious, honored, and loved. And by the way, those are all perfect tense verbs, which you know what that means, church family? It means that at a point way back here in the past, that is how God saw us. And it continues eternally into the future. It never changes. 
So that means today, whether or not you feel like God loves you, doesn't matter, God loves you. That means whether or not today you and I feel like we are precious in his sight, doesn't matter, we're precious in his sight. It means when you start to doubt and wonder as those, those, as those temptations, as those trials, as those hardships come in and you, you begin to question what is going on and as those natural thoughts begin to drift into your mind and you go, I, I don't know, I don't feel like God loves me or maybe as you've fallen and succumbed into a, a sin and temptation and, and you begin to sense the condemnation of the enemy come in and you go, how could God love me? And it means you and I don't look to our feelings, we don't look to our circumstances, we don't look to our community. We look to the reality, which is a truth set in stone in all of history, that 2,000 years ago Jesus was born of a virgin, he lived a life we couldn't live, and he hung on the cross out of love for you and I, and he is risen. And if you and I have responded to his gospel, then we are his. Where we don't just hear about his love, but we experience as objects of his love for all eternity. A love we cannot be separated from even when we face the death of our bodies. See, church family, are we confident that we understand who God is, his heart, and what he's done on our behalf but lastly, are we confident that we understand that he is sovereign, he is almighty, and he is faithful? Look at verse 5. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, who I have formed, and whom I have made. Now, here's, here's, what, he, here's what he says here. He says to a people in captivity who are under bondage, whose, whose fellow, uh, fellow Israelites of other tribes have been scattered and no one knows where they are in all the world, he says, understand, do not fear I'm with you. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring you back from the east. I'm going to bring you back from the west. Those powers in the north, those, those worldly powers, those earthly empires, those people who seem to be the reasons you feel fear that you don't have power over, I will command them to give you up. And guess what? They will give you up. And I will bring you back. Now, this is obviously for the people of Israel an allusion to God bringing them back into the promised land. But understand, church family, what it means for you and I is the end aim of the Lord's work is not just you and I finding a way to niche out a paradise on this earth but it's to redeem on this earth you and I from our sins, that we would be in a right relationship with him. It's to conform us to the image of Christ. It's to use us on his mission to seek and save sinners. And it is to come back to set all things right, to take those who are in Christ and have died, to take those who are still alive, to bring the new heaven and the new earth and for us to dwell and perfected bodies for all eternity face to face with each other and God. And here's the reality, church family. It's going to happen because, as these verses show, he is almighty, meaning he has all power. Do you notice? There is no question of God of, well, I might do these things if I am strong enough. 
No, it's I'm going to do these things. Why? Because I am almighty. I have all power. We see that he is sovereign, meaning he is the one who is in fact in control. It means if God looks at the empire of the north and God looks at the empire of the south and says, give my people up, guess what? It doesn't matter how much the leaders of those empires say no. It doesn't matter. God's in control. He is the sovereign ruler. They will give them up. We see that he's almighty. We see that he's sovereign. We see that he is faithful. You see, because there was a covenant made with the people of Israel that they would be God's chosen people, that he would give them a land. And now they find themselves over here in exile. What does that mean? Is God not almighty? Is he not powerful enough? Has Babylon usurped his sovereignty? Or has God decided to no longer be faithful? And God in this passage is saying, no, you're over here in discipline. You need to to be humbled and learn the things you need to learn. Why? Because I am faithful and I will bring you back. In church family, God has made a covenant with you and I far greater than the old covenant. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that is the fact that you and I were not made for this world. We were made for the one to come, and he is coming back, and he will take you and I safely home. So what do we do with this? Well, the command's there all throughout. We do not live in fear. Means if we understand that there is an intimacy between God and us as His people, that there is a presence as we walk through the hardship and trials and tribulations of this world, it means that we understand His heart, how He sees us, how He's delivered us, that we see that He's almighty, He's sovereign, and He's faithful. Church family, it means that when we meditate and look at these truths, we are left with no other option but to reject the fear that so easily overwhelms our hearts to reject the fear that so easily strives and takes control. There's over 300 commands in Scripture not to fear. And God takes every one of them seriously, church family. It says in Psalm 37, do not fret, it leads only to evil. You Here's the reality. When you and I begin to walk in fear... When we wake up on a day and we turn on the news and we see all the sinful weight of this whole world screaming in our face, it means when there is the fear of whether or not I should go outside, it means living in a world where there's a fear of, is there a danger if I go see a movie in the movie theater, if I simply drop my child off to school? It means the fear of what could happen in this election or that election. It means the fear, what you name it, name the issue that all of a sudden threatens the safety and security of your life and the life of your loved ones. It means when those fears come up, If we begin to allow ourselves to be consumed by, driven by, controlled by those fears, we may not reject Christ, probably won't, but we'll begin to seek out our own solutions, our own devices. We'll begin to grasp harder for control We'll begin to doubt the goodness and greatness of God. We'll begin to be focused on missions other than God's for our lives. Missions that will keep us in our lack of control, but we won't see that because we're not 
thinking rationally and seeing clearly and hearing correctly. Instead, we will seek missions for our lives that we believe will maximize our safety and security for us and our loved ones. And the sad reality is when that fear controls us, it will lead us to do and to live in ways and to justify things that are not reflective of the glory of God. Because church family, it says right here, everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, understand church family, if you and I are in Christ, we were not created as human beings and we were not redeemed as sons and daughters of God for our glory. God does not exist for your glory and my glory. We exist for his. Which means we cannot live driven by fear. We must live driven by the loving awe and wonder and worship of the glory and greatness of our God. But the only way you or I are going to practically take that step to see where we are living in fear, to hear the Lord's convicting voice tell us where we're living in fear, to go and lay that before the Lord as if we will come back and return to a place where we see the truths of a passage like Isaiah 53, that God is not a God who is far off, but he is a God who is intimately involved in every last detail of our lives, that he is not a God who who is a football coach who goes, hey, get out there on the field and tough it up. But he is a God who has gone before us through the waters and the fires. He is a God who goes with us, who will not fail or forsake us, which means if we are in that water and it feels like it's about to drown us, we can take confidence in that moment and know it will not drown me and God is with me. And so I can trust him even if it seems like this could pull me down. God's got something he's going to do with it, so I will just keep digging deeper and pressing deeper into his heart and who he is. Why? Because we know who he is and we understand his heart towards us. That we are not, we are not God's um, ant farm that he can shake up when he gets bored. But we are precious. We are honored because he loves us and he poured out the precious blood of his own son with whom he loves perfectly on you and I's behalf to have the opportunity to gain us back and to adopt us as sons and daughters. And we can reject fear because we are confident that the one who now calls us by name, who claims us as his own, who is with us in all of this, he is the one who has all power. He is the one who has all control because he is the sovereign Lord and he is the one who is faithful and he will not fail a word he said. If we don't anchor ourselves in faith, in confidence, resting upon that which is true, then we will walk in fear. But understand, in the midst of a world that is terrifying, there is the ability for you and I to live not driven by fear. If we will truly walk in the God who knows us, who goes with us, who has redeemed us, who has called us, and who will faithfully finish his work and bring us home.
Let's pray. Father, I'm always grateful for this passage, even just in, in, in reflecting on it for this morning. God, even in preaching it on, in this pulpit this morning, God, it is always convicting to me. Because in my life, Lord, I just recognize it is far too easy to be driven by fear. Because frankly, Lord, this is a terrifying world. It's a terrifying world to hear about. And Lord, as I have experienced this world, it is a terrifying world to experience. But Lord, yesterday we just celebrated the fact that not only is this who you are, God, who we looked at today, but Jesus, you have experienced every aspect of the terror of this world in the flesh. And you lived every moment of your life never driven by fear. But in love for the Father, loving and caring for us, all for the glory of God. Jesus, the hope of Christmas, God is a hope that enables us not to live in fear. And so what I do just pray, is, as I've prayed many times, even this fall, that, Father, we would not be a congregation, a church family driven in any way by fear, but that we would be driven by the awe and wonder and love and worship of every aspect of who you are. So, Father, however we need to respond in this moment, Holy Spirit, you are here and you are moving. God, if there needs to be confession, may there be confession. If there just needs to be a simple sitting quietly and just being encouraged by the fact that in the midst of the holiday season and the pain and the, Lord, that you are with us. Lord, then may there be that. Lord, if there's someone in here who goes, I, I need that kind of hope and I don't have it because I truly hear the Spirit convicting of my sin and I know that I'm not the Lord's. Lord, may today be a day of salvation. Holy Spirit, may we respond to you. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.